Hi, I'm Vyasna Beeson. I'm CEO of EasyCamp. episode is a fascinating peek into the evolution of the payment ecosystem in India through the lens of an early pioneer in the payment space. In this episode, your host Akshay Tath is talking with Bias Nambisan, the co-founder and CEO of EasyTap. EasyTap is one of the earliest startups in the payment space, having started more than 10 years ago and was founded by some of the biggest names in the startup ecosystem today, like Sanjay Swami, who runs Prime Venture Partners, and Abhijit Bose, who is the India head of WhatsApp. EasyTap has had a fascinating journey, having started as a payment device company before pivoting into a payment SaaS company. In this conversation, Bias talks about journey of steering the company through turbulent times and his own learnings from the journey. EasyTap was recently acquired by Razorpay for $200 million, thereby generating handsome returns for its investors. Listen on, and if you like such insightful conversations about the evolution of startups in India, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. I was the CFO for Intel's largest business, which is their mobile microprocessor. And we used to keep coming back home. And during that time, Bobby and Anuja would say, Hey, what are you doing in a big company? Come work for, come join us. Bobby's doing this dope soon. And in 2014, when I had finished my, finished the next stint at Intel, I said, maybe I should consider doing this. I went forward. I remember March, 2014, I was thinking, Hey, what should I do next? At the point I'm still thinking I'm a lifelong Intel person. I'd already been there 20 years. And, and then Bobby called me. So I spoke to Bobby and he, Bobby said, look, if you're interested in startups, come here. This is the hotbed. You can, I'll obviously show you my startup, but I'll introduce you to Flipkarts. I'll, I know all the people here. You can talk to all of them. So I went back to my room and I told my wife, Irene, I said, hey, Bobby said I should travel there and check it out. Maybe in a couple of months I'll go. And by the way, my wife, who's not India, when during the four years here, she loved India. She didn't want to leave. By the time I came back to the room, she said, you know what? I booked you for a flight for this Thursday. Your flight, I'll say to the, to meet Bobby. So that's how I ended up in Bangalore. I met with Sanjay Swami, who is one of the founders, Bobby and Vakta. And I liked what I saw and I knew nothing about payments. And uh, one, one quick question here, Bobby is Abhijit Bose. Abhijit, Abhijit Bose, right. That's right. Okay. Who's currently heading WhatsApp in India? He's currently heading WhatsApp payments. Okay. 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 So, and I met with the team. One of the things I was concerned about, it was that typically a lot of the startups are started up by people earlier on in the career, younger. I had already been working for 20 years and I was concerned about just a cultural fit. And so this, it was reassuring to me that this was Bobby and his co-founder Bhakta was actually had worked with me at Intel and Sanjay. So I found the cultural fit was a big part of my decision-making and I found a fit there and the environment and that was going on in India was so dynamic that motivated me to, I didn't know all about it, but what I knew I was found very exciting. The material piece didn't matter to me. I was going from a big corporation to a place that was a tiny room, right? But that completely didn't matter to me. In fact, about six months later, someone asked me, but Hey, how is this going? And my response, I wasn't even thinking, I just blurted out. I said, I wish I had done this earlier. Yeah, that's my response, right? I was enjoying it. It, it. it was great. So that's my story. And, and I'm still here at EasyTap. So one question here. So yeah, EasyTap started in 2011 and you joined in 14. So from that 11 to 14 period, just give me like a history of it. What was sure. the original idea with which yes, uh, the origin, started yes, EasyTap? So the original idea was really Sanjay. Okay. 
Sanjay used to be in FinTech. He was CEO of MCheck. And he's a very creative guy, always has ideas, always thinking about ideas. And he had this idea and he was working on the site. So then he happened to meet Botha actually, and said, I'm trying to do this. We want to do, make payment acceptance easy with a little device that plugs into the phone. And Sanjay explained what he was thinking. And Bhakta told him, you're completely wrong. It won't work the way you're saying it, but I know how I can make it work. And so Bhakta started working with Sanjay in experimenting with a little reader, a little plug-in reader. And as at the same time, Sanjay was also so inspired by Square in the US, I guess. But it, this was inspired by Square, like in the US, Square had it was used it was roughly the same thing. Square had done it and we were looking to do it. They were looking to do it here. Yeah. Now at in the same at the same time, Sanjay with two other players, Bala and Sripati, were also setting up an angel fund called Angel Prime. Okay. Which today and, is Prime Venture Partners. Now today it's Prime Venture Fund. And Bala was also seeding some other companies. So they were looking to hire some people to run the two different ideas. And they were actually interviewing Bobby for the other company. Sanjay was interviewing Bobby for the other company. And now Bobby had also been in FinTech in India. He had worked in NGPay before. And NGPay and NCheck used to be competitors. They knew each other and they were also neighbors, right? We all lived in the same neighborhood. And it struck Sanjay that Bobby would be the better, uh, Bobby would be a good fit for Easy Tap versus the other company. And he stole Bobby from Baha for this for Easy Tap. So that's how Bobby Bhakta came together with Sanjay. And Sanjay, since he was going to run Angel Prime, which is our Prime Ventures, he said he wasn't going to be like, acting in the execution, he'd be on the board. And, and Sanjay had already seen one exit, like his previous venture, Ziptile, was acquired by Twitter. But at that point, they had not invested in Ziptile yet. So EasyTap was the, EasyTap was the first company that they initiated. And so it's, in a way, it's a little bit more closer to Sanjay's heart than even Ziptile. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's not what started. And they started working on the first version, which was the magnetic card reader in, this was late 11 and got the first bonding investment in 12. But then in 13, what happened was the government changed the rules that you needed to have a pin and chip. So they needed to roll. We needed to go back to the drawing board, redesign, rebuild everything, re-architect the process because the economics changed from the simple reader that was there to now needing a more complex device. And at the time there wasn't an inexpensive device at the time it was, we had estimated or they had estimated that India really needs a device that is not more than 3000 rupees, really closer to 2,500 rupees and nowhere in the world, even from China, could you, could one get such a device. So we ended up building designing and building our own device. And it was a little, ended up being a little bit more expensive at around 3,500, but we were pricing it at 2,500 forward pricing it, thinking, okay, once we get the volumes, we can scale it down. We'll drive down the volume. Now that was very instrumental. When I look back in really driving down the market, because once we had that device and we positioned it at between 2,500 to 3,000, come others had to compete and bring drive down the prices. And then, then we saw the Chinese step up in volume on these MPOS devices and the prices started coming down. Yeah. Okay. What did the device look like? This was like not a standalone device, right? It would connect with your mobile phone. It needed to connect with the mobile phone. I, I a, a Bluetooth connection. It was a Bluetooth connection. It had two versions. We had a Bluetooth version, so it was roughly about the yay big. Yes, two inches, which is tall and it's an Okay. Yeah, it's a very tiny calculator device. Mm -hmm. And you could connect it to your phone either with a USB cable or with Bluetooth. Okay. 
Okay. It was the early version of the device. You would have an app on the phone where you would punch in the amount that right. needed to so be. So the app on the phone, the EasyTap app was in the phone, can talks to our server. It talks to this. And by the way, this had to be a very, it was a very secure device. I had to go through full certification. I'm still proud that we are one of the few companies in the world that actually had a fully certified device. I don't think any other Indian company has even done that. But, but did it ourselves. It was built and manufactured out of Bangalore. Yeah. So we're very proud of what we did there. Of course, later on, once the volume started coming, the Chinese volumes, we couldn't keep up in terms of pricing and manufacturing costs. Now, eventually we went device agnostic and the device was always for us. It was a means to an end. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was the software platform and enabling that and whoever, whichever device was the right fit we could use. So what was the end? The end was to make payments frictionless uh, or make allow merchants to accept digital payments instead of cash? Yes. But was. the thinking was when you looked at the market back then, there was digital payment acceptance, but it was typically in high-end retail. 90% of offline retail and point of service was non-card accepted, not digital payment accepted. Even Amazon and Flipkart, the delivery people went around with pieces of sheets of paper. Bobby and team actually helped Flipkart digitize their first deal. Flipkart was our first customer back then, by the way, in delivery space. They would ride with the agents through a delivery process and show that, hey, look, you take all these papers and the agent has to come back to the warehouse and now reconcile each of these papers with the systems. That would take a lot of time. If you did it digitally, you saved a lot of time and you're increasing your productivity because you can do more deliveries in the same time because you don't need to come back and do all of this. You reduce your errors, you reduce, you increase customer convenience, etc. right? So they had to go through all that process of fine tuning and creating that solution. And so then that was in 2012. So when I joined app, I just started changed over to the new pin and chip card. And we were the first version of the pin and chip card was being refined. And at the same time, we had just won this large contract with SBI. SBI had a vision of reaching out to 500,000 merchants in India with an MPOS solution. And we had won, we had won that contract and that's when I joined. Yeah. Okay. I was under the assumption that most of these banks have their own feet on street who go out and sell devices to merchants. So that, yeah. So this is where we tried where I'll take the blame. We'll take the blame. We in through the, and that was our, the process we had with other bank partners like HDFC, etc., where they did the sales, we did the servicing of the device. They okay, would actually, so you were a, like a device partner for. We were the MPOS device and software partner. They would actually do the sales. We had envisioned. For a bank, this would help them acquire accounts because every merchant who takes their MPOS solution needs to open a current account. Exactly. Right. So when we had bid in this RFP process with Citibank, we have followed a similar logic that they would do the selling and we would only need to do the logistics and the support. And we had priced it that way, but as we jointly found out, they actually needed us to do more selling and we, and then the economics didn't quite make sense for us because that was more, a lot more expensive. And we were a small company back then. It couldn't really hold that. And so we, anyway, that we weren't able to get the volumes we were thinking at back then. Had it raised funds when you joined? We had, it had already raised two rounds. We just closed the second round when I joined. How much had it raised by then? It had raised, so that's a good question. I want to say it had raised three plus, it raised about 15, 10, 15 million dollars total between the two rounds. Which is pretty substantial for that time. Yeah, it was substantial for that time when it was. And, and then subsequent to that, about a year and a half after I, Join, we had raised another 26 million. 
which was a, another big race in 2050. Hmm. And so what was the, the plan here? Was it to do like how Pine Labs does where they go and they have feet on street and they acquire merchants and uh, allow them to accept digital payments? Or was it to vary into that? The, our model was we wanted to work with the bank and really be the service partner for the bank. Okay. There were two areas we were trying to address. One was we saw a large tier of merchants who we thought would be best serviced by the banks because the banks have immense reach and we could be their technology platform and allow them to reach this at a very affordable cost. So we were focused on driving down the cost of the device and the service with the deployment being by the bank. The other area that we were focusing on was we felt there were, there were enterprises that were not using digital and digital payment acceptance. And we wanted to provide a platform that could easily integrate into the enterprise ERP systems and enable them to offer a digital payment acceptance at their delivery service agents. So for players like Amazon and Flipkart, et cetera, wherever you have a, an agent on the field, being able to accept payment on the field, but also having that payment completely integrated into backend. So for example, while the early customers who really take advantage of this was Airtel stores were none of those, you walk in and you do did a payment transaction, end of the day, all of those paper slips had to be manually reconciled. There was an enterprise department in the finance team in Airtel whose job was to call every store and say, please you reconcile and hit the reconcile button. Otherwise our system, we won't do it. Once we deployed our integrated solution where it's automatically reconciled, every system is updated. They didn't feel, right? It became so proficient. So we were addressing the enterprise segment with very, very complex integrations with, and a modular architecture that allowed us to do these complex integrations very easily. And at the same time, we were building a low cost platform for banks to deploy, right? In neither of these models, will did we actually have a large or did we have a large speed on street model? And we did experiment with it and we found that is a very high burn model. And we decided we're not going to go down that path. Here, like the Airtel example you gave me this year, talking of reconciliation of the card swipes. I remember there used to be a time when I would swipe a card and the merchant would keep one copy in their cash register. So well, you might have seen a little, a little metal stick that they just put the, yes, the, yes, you know, take it down and, and match yeah. everything. Yeah. 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 I had almost forgotten that they used to do that and now they don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You okay. don't need to do all of that. So that was part of the revolutionizing that we had achieved by driving down the cost and, and driving this digital digitization. Right? So you know what essentially for a large retail client, you would be like payments plus workflows. Like not only would you do yes, payments, but yes, the workflows after that, you would automate that as well. Absolutely. And uh, what is the economics of it? Like typically I believe there's a 1.5 to 2%. If you were, yes. If you were, so if you are, there are two, again, there are two different models. One is you are the acquirer yourself. Okay. You're an aggregator. So you go out and acquire the merchant. The merchant then would be an easy tap merchant and easy tap would have a bank behind it. So in that case, when a merchant gets paid a hundred rupees, easy tap could tell the merchant, we're offering you the service for 1.5% fee. Okay. Easy tap will get to keep that 1.5%, but out of that 1.5%, it has to also pay the issuing card. So the customer's card company has to be paid, MasterCard has to be paid, Visa has to be paid, etc. That isn't a very, there isn't a lot of margin. There isn't actually, in some most cases, there is no margin. India was already very competitive, right? Because I don't know if you are aware, but uh, most cards today are platinum cards. The interchange on platinum card is 1.8%, which means the acquirer has to pay the issuer 1.8% no matter what. So 
See, even if the acquirer is only charging the merchant 1% or 1.5%, they have to eat the delta. Okay. And now big acquirers like HDFC and others can do it because they also get float business. And a lot of the cards are already their cards. So they're on all sides and they can, they don't have the same cost, right? Very expensive proposition. And we believe that this is one of the things they told me when I joined as Bobby, I remember why Bobby telling me, he says, look, we believe MDR is under pressure in markets like India. That isn't going to be our primary focus. We are going to focus on software as a service and just paying or charging a subscription fee to our banks. You pay out hundred rupees per month per terminal, 120, 150, 100 rupees. And then if you wanted more integrated solutions, we would charge you, right? Because we're taking more complex solutions would get charged a bit more. And the others was a monthly subscription fee. Yeah, for customers taking a more complex solution, it was per terminal pricing only on a different. Yeah, it was mostly still a, a per terminal per month fee. There was some exact exception, exceptions where they said, hey, we'll do a, we're doing it in large volume, give us a platform fee, etc. But in general, it was a per terminal per month. Okay, 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 got it. And in addition to this, you would still charge them the one-time cost of the terminal and that you became device agnostic. We became device agnostic. And in, in fact, the terminal was often provided by the bank. The bank would buy the terminal. Initially, they were buying the terminal from us and then giving it to the merchant and they may sell it to the merchant. They may give it for free to the merchant. It just depends on their relationship with the merchant. And perhaps if you did so much transactions or you maintain so much balance, they will give it to you for free. Otherwise, they'll charge you something. But they were buying it from us. And today, they don't even buy it from us. They just buy it. We tell them, hey, you just get whatever terminals you want. We'll provision it on our system. Okay. 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 So like for Dell, they were just paying you for the software that was connecting the terminal to their ERP and the terminal itself was provided by their bank to them or they bought it directly. And actually in, in, in that specific case of the Airtel, they bought it from us. Okay. Okay. We, bought the it yeah, we actually did more for air. We actually developed the app. So the app that was running on the agent's terminal in the Airtel store was also developed by us. We had lengthier, deeper work that we did with Airtel. They were a little different, but typically the merchant, the, the enterprise would often get the terminals from their bank of choice and we would deploy the software. We would bring the additional linkages that would need it. And, and then we would get paid typically by the bank or in some time, in some cases directly by the merchant. Okay. 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 So th this was a fairly good cause of. Not relying on the MDRs because yeah. we all know what happened to MDRs in India. Yeah, uh, MDRs just collapsed, right? It, and we saw that coming. There is, and and I think we that insulated us even when, for example, when COVID hit and transactions stopped, our services didn't stop. Our service fee didn't stop. We obviously reduced some rates and we cut some deals, but. Our revenue didn't go to zero, it dropped by 20%, well, but it didn't, didn't completely disappear. So that, that was the trade-off we made in going down that path. And, and where we see the, the opportunity to participate in the BIPs is when there are additional value-added services like EMI, et cetera, being offered to the merchant or credit, BMPL type credit, then we can get a credit conversion happens, we could get the fee for that, etc. So that's an opportunity we believe is still out there and we're working on. The transaction is the payment itself, we believe is largely a commodity. Mm. Got it. You did the 25 million fundraise in 2017. Why did you need to raise such a big round? Because you were not in a cash burn. Your business model was not cash burn, right? There was what? no cash bags. You didn't need to spend on feet on street and all no, it was, yeah, you're right. The reason we did that was we were, we had just won that SBI deal and okay. And we were building devices, which at that point we were still losing money on the device. 
because we it was costing us 3300 we were pricing it at 2500 which we felt once the volumes come down we could make there but for the next couple of next year or so we would need to sink some money and then as we were trying to ramp our business we also wanted to experiment to see if we could help SBI speed up the process by also deploying our own sales people at the same time. So the device portion of it did suck up money in that interim. That was where our burn was, even though we weren't, we didn't have significant burn on the acquisition side. We were having device side burn. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. You went through that period where the original founders left and you transitioned from CFO role to a CEO role. Tell me about that period. Was it like a very high stress period for you? And just tell me the story also, what happened? Oh, yeah, you know. So we had been doing, this was in 2018. We had, I remember we had, I had just come back from a board meeting from the US and Bobby was still in the US at that point. And he was going to come a few days later. When I landed at the airport, there was a WhatsApp message from him saying, Hey man, when you get, when you land, give me a call. And I said, that was unusual. But anyway, I'd landed at whatever, two in the morning. I was in the taxi, nothing to do. So I said, okay, hey Bobby, awake and it's daytime in the US. And he called me and had no inkling. I had absolutely no inkling, right? I was just completely surprised. He said, Hey, look, I've been doing this for a while and, and I've been, this opportunity has come from WhatsApp and that seems like really an opportunity to really make a big dent in India. And that's something that I'm really excited about. And I, I've told the board this. I, my, like, I, I was, my jaw was on the ground because I just, I hadn't, it wasn't that there was any flags saying, hey, something like this might be coming in. I think it was Tokyo. And then I thought about it and I said, okay, I was playing an active role in running the company. I could continue to do that. And then in whatever capacity. So Sanjay came and talked to me and he said, hey, this is happening. Would you be willing to do the acting CEO role or going to initiate a formal search. So I said, absolutely. And I hadn't thought I hadn't come into this envisioning wanting to be CEO or it just so happened. Right. And I just said, okay, I didn't feel like I could walk away because if both of us walked away, then, you know, the company would be really hit. We had split the job between us quite well. So either of us could have covered for the other. But if both of us left, that would be a, it would be a big hole. And this was November, 2018. And I took over as acting CEO. And, and one of the decisions I'd made, and it was coming to that wasn't, it just so happened that I was at the helm and actually pulled the trigger on it was that we would get out of our device business because that's where our burn was. And as I was looking at how we move forward. There were devices that were available at lower cost when we got from other suppliers. Didn't make sense for us to keep burning devices. And it's not just the cost of manufacturing the device. We actually had to have a hardware team that engineered the device, certified the device, kept up with every change. Every change requires a new certification. It's very expensive, very complex process, very expensive. And we did really didn't have a scale. You needed the scale of millions of units and nobody in India had the scale of millions of units to justify a device, which is why you don't see any unique India only devices because India doesn't justify the volume. You need five, 10 millions of devices just that kind of scale. We got out of that. But one of the, then the consequence of me making that decision to get out of the hardware business was that Bhakta, who was there as the hardware partner. There wasn't the role that he was looking to play wasn't, was had gone away. So then Bhakta said, hey, look, man, we are shrinking in our, we know what we're doing. Instead of designing new products, we just going to continue supporting the existing devices. That's going to trickle down over time. Doesn't make sense for me to stay on. I'm thinking of some new ideas and stuff. And which was the consequence of the decision 
but the decision was economically, it made sense. It, there was a lot of emotional attachment. I'm also a product guy from the first day I was here with Sitwin Buck that I had with the product team, try to say, why don't we do this, do that, create. And it was something that was very dear to me. But if I looked at it dispassionately, it just didn't make sense to do it. And, and I'm glad we made the call. It was the, was the right call. It was a tough call. But once we made the call, then it didn't make those leaving then was made sense. Or at least fall out of that. And then, so three months later, which is the of, of 2019, the board came back and said they had done an extensive search. They had interviewed, they had interviewed me. They interviewed a few other players and they felt that I was running the company well and would ask me and hired me to stay on. You made that transition from CFO to CEO, your way of thinking, decision-making, all of that must have also needed to evolve. Tell me about how your decision-making models evolved from the CFO lens to the CEO lens. Oh, yes. Yeah, it, it did. As much as I'd like to have thought, no, I know I was already thinking like this. No, it did. As a CFO, I took a very economics first look at the business. And sometimes when you do that, you miss out the strategic aspects or you undervalue those or you get all, so overweight the economic factors versus the, the other factors. And that was okay for me to do because I knew Bobby would cover that, those factors. I would play the, the financial perspective card. He would play the business card and then between the two, we'd get to the right decision. Right. But when, once I, mean, I switched over, suddenly I had to do that and I had to, I was coming from this other space and I had to turn up, transition over and uh, now there are uh, employees in my team members will say they did see the difference, right? They would think, would have previously come and talked to me and said, Hey, should we do this? And I say, this just makes no sense. At least don't tell me how you make the money. And I'd shoot it down and then you'd get up and go, then we'd have to more rounds. Now I'm like, yeah, but let's try this. Even if it doesn't make economic sense up front, let's examine all the other possible angles and then make a decision. I had switched. There were some decisions I looked back and I said, I was perhaps too, maybe I did the, I took the wrong decisions and then looking back in hindsight where I was saying, Hey, look, this, that's as low as we can go. I shouldn't go any lower. Let's cut our loss here. But in the process, I opened the door for somebody else to come in into a customer where into a, into a partner where I shouldn't have let that person come back in someone else in cost us more to go back and get share, et cetera. So there obviously was earnings there. And so it is a switch that is required. Yeah. So basically your appetite for risk increased, like you started taking more bets. I had to take more risk. So you have to have that ability to be willing to take risk. It's not take completely unjudged risk, but certainly your risk appetite has to go up. And for me, and I was in a transition where I was still CFO and then I had taken on CEO. So I didn't have a counterbalancing role. You'd Bobby and me and then Yang, and I could go hard and he'd go either way. The either way his mindset was I could be the counterfoil for that and vice versa. And suddenly when you had both roles in one, caused me to really think hard about what I needed to do differently and what I perhaps was missing or didn't do, I had to change. And yes, that was a big change. How was the business doing in terms of what kind of top line was it generating? If you could, like, just to understand the growth, like 2014, you joined. Since then, what kind of top line has it been growing at? Uh, that's so far back, man. You're going to ask me, dude. Uh, like, um, the numbers, I am very broad. When we were joined, we were sub. I think I'd want, I remember the time we were trying to cross one crore in revenue. But the annual would. Uh, in one, we were trying to crow across at the point one crore of AR, of MR, monthly recurring revenue. Right? And and so that would be 12 crores, monthly recurring. So let's, at that point, let's call it roughly 2 million. Uh, or it might have, you was way less than that. And the goal was to get past that. So then on a 
Then with our SBI contract and HDFC and partnership, we were growing. Then when I made the, the SBI, like I said, the economics didn't quite work out. Not blaming them. It's we had misjudged it when we did the, the RFP of what the economics would be. Came a point we had to pull out of the partnership and we say, look, we can't say this because we're losing money on every, every deal. We're not making money. So I had to pull out of that and that took a hit onto our revenue, flattened our revenue, right? And, and but then coming into 2018 into 19, we saw nice revenue growth. 19 at 20, 21, 20 to 21, we were growing 50 but to 7. When you stopped selling your hardware, that, that would have also cost the revenue. Also, the revenue. Even though it didn't hit our bottom line, it improved our bottom line, but it hit our revenue. So the revenue was planted because our device revenue just went away. And even though our subscription revenue was growing, it was being offset by the decrease in the device revenue. And, and internally for management purposes, we really were only focusing on subscription revenue. We knew it was for us to a sort of a means to an end. And we knew that that wasn't the end goal because a device business margins are very low, you know, going to get valuation of device business, et cetera. It's a subscription business. That's a valuable piece. And that's the wonderful piece. Okay. Okay. Is it? So what did you close last year, right? revenue-wise? And this would be like now 100% subscription revenue, right? It was, it's almost, we do have some legacy customers who still have some vice business there, right? Or, but between, if I look at just the subscription revenue last year, we did over 10 million in AR on, on that. That was a 50%, 60% growth over the prior year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And this is not MDR share. This is the part device. This is net revenue, right? We, this is not the inflated by MDR, et cetera. It's just pure subscription revenue. If you look at total revenue last year, we were closer to 14, 13 and a half to four. Tell me about Razorpay, the acquisition which just happened. What led up to it? And... So you know, what led up to it is we had so I took over 2018, really 19 start. We started changing some of our tactics and strategies. We started expanding on the bank front. We were doing well. We had done a last, the last round we had done was in 2017. We had relatively low burn. We were still living off of that. And I had gone back to the board and I said, look, if we hit these metrics, that if I would be very optimistic of future growth and I want to go invest in that. And when we get that, I'm going to raise money. I'd set the expectation way back when I said second half of 2021, we're going to go out in the market to raise money for 2022. But yeah. why did you need to raise money? Was it for spending on customer acquisition? Or on it, it was customer. So the, it was on spending on customer. So the place that we wanted to go after, remember I told you we do SaaS, but we were missing out on a source of revenue, which is going after EMI. Okay. And this is where Pine had established a good franchise and it's worth tapping into. We needed to go in to do that, but to do that, we had to both build the systems, get the people that was investment needed. We also saw the convergence coming of online and offline. Okay. I knew I had to play in online in some manner. It didn't make sense for me to go head to head with the big established people because that would require deep pockets and a long lead time to build that. But there were niches and ways that we were thinking of we could en enter in and still be relevant, at least for certain segments. We had customers who were coming to us and said, Hey, Mac, can you do, you know, both sides of this? Can we, and we were beginning to do offline, online payments in SMS pay, et cetera. So we also looking to scale some of that. So that's where I was looking to invest and I still am. So yeah. that hasn't changed. We were out in the market looking for that. One and, question uh, here, the, yeah. the EMI product would need a lending partner whom you would work with, right? Could Which we that, yeah. So we, there's different kinds of EMI. There is obviously the credit card, debit card EMI, and that was doing integrations with more and more banks to get more and more EMI debit card. 
Then there is brand EMI, which is doing it, acquiring brands and integrating into their systems to offer brand EMI. Then there is NBFC EMI, which is integrating with NBFC lenders to offer their EMI, right? We wanted to offer all three, all those forms wanted to do. So we were out, we had, we got to hire an investment banker to lead the round. But at about that time, Bill came and talked to us. He had actually talked to us even before we had started the fundraise back in April or May of last year, he had come and talked to us and we said, look, we're not looking to be sold. We are actually going to be going raising money later this year, but if you want to chat, we're happy to chat with you. And we chatted. Then I didn't hear anything from them. We continue that to go raise money. And then Herschel came back and called me and he said, look, we've met with every player in the industry and we really think you, we looked at how you guys do product, you look, do the product like we would do it. Right. He said, look, the first time we thought of going offline, we're a product first company and our first in inclination is to build it ourselves. Right. We thought about it, but then there's a lot of learning curve. It takes time. There's more to it than just the product. And so we looked at partners. We found you guys have done it the way we would have done it. Well, you know, is there any way we could, you know, work, come together? We said, look, we're in the market to raise funds, but happy to entertain interest in the salad conversation. So that's how it started. Well, as part of that was, it's also, it was a process where I needed to get to know them and, and then they weren't the only ones who came and spoke to us. There were other people who were interested as well. Okay. Like in acquisition or in funding? You know, in acquisition, we had the conversation and going back to just my own personal journey of coming from Intel to easy tap, some of the same metrics I was still looking for, where, who's that? It wasn't just a product fit. Where is a cultural fit? Where is that complementariness? And one of the things we loved about what we saw with RazorPay was their vision of the market and where it was going was the same as us. Their operating philosophy was similar to us. And their product philosophy was also very similar to us, right? And so that gave good comfort as we went through that. So what is their vision of the market and how does EasyTap fit into that? Look, their vision is that payments are effectively going to be omni-channel, right? It's just that today, the notion of being able to service just emergence one side versus another, where the two systems don't talk to another, isn't going to be where the future is. The future is where it's all the merchant sees everyone with their GP, you could walk into a store and store doesn't have the stuff, the item that you need, and you could just pay at the counter, order it from the, the online store, but you just pay at the counter on the store and you go home and the, wherever your remote location is, it gets you, right? It's, it blends in the online, offline, right? It provides the merchant with one single dashboard of what's going on across the entire, entire shop uh, companies from a sales perspective. And it, but, and it wasn't just omni-channel payments. Remember, we're all looking to do more than just payments, right? Razor pay is doing payroll for the smaller, right? They have corporate cards, they have loyalty. We had envisioned the similar structure of loyalty, we seeing things. And those things are also really omni-channel. You should got to be able to do it offline or online loyalty. You can't have one solution for it online, one solution for offline. That doesn't make sense. So the, the vision of that, the convergence in payments and the adjacencies around payments within the merchant, there was a, we, I felt that, Hey, we have the same vision. Right now we were at different starting points and coming at it from different sites, but it was pretty complimentary in how I saw it. Okay. Okay. So Razorpay acquired 80% stake. So who has the remaining 20%? Is it the, the 
founders and you and oops, or it's a complete, it'll be a complete transaction. It's just this time timing on a portion of it, but it's really very good. So like you would get shares in Razorpay now and the other founders and the investors, unless someone wants to cash out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. So what do you see your role now going forward? Look, two things. One is continuing to tackle the offline segment is there isn't, there are differences in that business. And we're the set of people and managers who've come with that experience. We need to continue to build that together with Razorpay. That's important. And that's why we're doing this deal is to go after both markets and we need that. But I also have a role of making sure that we integrate well, right? We execute well together. And I've been in a lot of acquisitions in my time at Intel and seen a lot of failure. Right. So I'm very aware that there are things that either side can do that sort of will lend itself to success or to failure. And so part of my role is also just putting that change and, and making it successful because it's in both our interests to make this tremendously successful. At a technical level, what are those things that you can do to make an acquisition successful? I don't know whether there's one recipe. I'll tell you what things, I will give examples of where it has failed, right? You work team and the teams now operate as us versus them. I'm happy. I look back even within our experience at EasyTap where we had acquired a company and for the longest time, they were referred to internally as that team. They're no longer there with us. Why? Because we didn't think of them more integrated, holistic. And, and I told my team that I said, when we have a meeting, I said, look, we've got to now think of ourselves as race open. We can't be saying, hey, we're easy tap, there is a fit. No, we're always got different charters and we've got to go after the offline business. We're going after the online. We're going to go stuff together, but we've got to think as one. And to me, that's super critical. And, and to me, there is no ego on here. What do we call ourselves? Is it easy tap? Is it raise up? Pain? No, it makes sense to me. You build one brand, you have a master brand and you know, what makes sense. Let's do the right master brand. Oh, if you have sub brands under that's fine, but I no issue. It is to me, it's why they just be successful. It's not, I'm not tied into the ego of no, I, this, it, it is not my easy tap is not my identity. So I want to make this business successful. You can call it easy tap. You can call it something else. And in the past, we didn't thought changing our name. So I'm not wedded to it. Okay. Okay. Got it. On the other thing I've seen that leads to failure is when you try to over-engineer. I remember when we, we'd acquired company at Intel and that they'd have hundred people coming down the company. Somebody saying, okay, now all these systems have to change to X. Your, this has to change to that. This has to change that. And the management team was so overwhelmed. They let, you know, they weren't looking at the business. They were so consumed by the integration and they lost that business. So that's one of those things I'm going to be looking out for and saying, Hey guys, if this is pushing too, too much in terms of acting to the business, then let's find the right, a better timing for that. Do you see yourself in this role in the long haul, or would you like to start up again? I don't think I don't think I want to do a start only startup again. Yeah. <laughs> at least I'm just at a point in my career where I'd like to build on this and I see the opportunity. Will I do this forever? No, absolutely not. Do I see myself doing this? And because we've got to a stage, I'm very proud of the journey we have. We've started coming and making it bigger and better. And with this acquisition, now we have even deeper asset pool to go after the things we want to go after and make it bigger. I'm excited about that. And after that, I'm going to retire and I work on my passions, which are, I restore cars. I build cars. Yeah. So that's my passion. So I'd rather go spend time on that after the next four, five years. So. What kind of cars do you restore? So I restore vintage cars. I actually do all the work myself. I build engines. I build. I do body work, I do suspension, electricals, 
I have a full-fledged garage. When I was in the, actually, this isn't the U.S. thing, although in the U.S. it was much easier. I would go to a junkyard, buy a junk car, bring it home, tow it home, and then rebuild it. But even as a kid growing up in Bangalore, I would do such stuff. I worked in a garage here locally on country road. I used to build stuff at home, look after them, tear down our car or motorcycle, whatever, rebuilding it. I love doing that stuff. In the neighborhood I live in, they call me mechanic wallas, which is neighbors when they're walking by, they'll see me under the, lying under the car, working on it, et cetera. The local staff, they just call me mechanic wallas. Amazing. Amazing. Working with hands must be able to give you that complete time off and downtime from it's just my brain is like not thinking about anything else. Why isn't this car starting or why is that thing not working like it should be? What's causing it and how do I check for it? How do I fix it? How do I get that part? What is that part that I need? I'm looking at all those. And for me, it's just complete relaxation. So it's a form of meditation, but I'm, it's not meditation, but for me, it's my brain is completely switched off of work. So I love that. Amazing. Amazing. Cool. I'll end with, look, just some tidbits over journey. We are now ramped to where we are processing 10 billion annualized GMV. We are, we are used at 500,000 touch points across multiple countries, India, UAE. We started our journey with buying the offline payment acceptance, but now we're sort of going into making it an omni-channel acceptance. And we're very excited about this journey. And it's in an environment where there's constant evolution of the types of payments, whether it's cards, QR, UBI, SMS. There's just so many things that are evolving, changing, and being able to handle all of that seamlessly for merchants and for consumers. I think it's an exciting business. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.